Good evening. On behalf of superheroes everywhere, oh, and superheroines, or super persons if you prefer, I bid you welcome. Ah, that I have your attention, we'll proceed. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Team Up Retrospective Series. He calls my arrival the dawn of the superhero. I am not sure if I know what that means. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob will be reviewing Legends of the Superheroes. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's mightiest mortal. Justice League of America. We all need heroes in our lives. Sometimes we find them in the most unlikely places. Gen 13. Once the students become Gen Active, no one will be able to stop us. Not Lynch, not the government. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. League of what? There have been other times when a danger upon the world required the services of singular individuals. And Watchmen. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And all whisper, No. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. That was naughty. Listener discretion is advised. Sounds cool. I kind of like the superhero stuff. It'll be just like, like a super friend. Today we're discussing the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. LXG. Yeah, get it right, man. It's all <laughs> hip and shit. Starring Sean Connery. And a bunch of white dudes that no one ever saw again. Nasiruddin Shah. Peter Wilson. Huh? Not from The Hunger Games. <laughs> Tony Curran. Stuart Townsend. Directed by Stephen Norrington. Blades Stephen Norrington. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> this is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm here with my own League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, the immortal sir, not a gazelle. Back to DC teams, back to Alan Moore. We're actually polishing off uh, the rest of his movie adaptations. Cursing us. I feel him praying to his snake god, cursing us right now <laughs> for even discussing it. Constantine, V for Vendetta. We did some Swamp Thing. We haven't worked in From Hell. I thought that was DC, but no, huh? No, that's actually... I believe Top Shelf, who is currently publishing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This was originally on America's Best Comics, which was an imprint of DC. It was like, we got Alan Moore. Let's let him do whatever he wants. So he had like Tom Strong and Top Ten, all these kind of like throwback ideas. And The League was one of them. He did three volumes with America's Best. And then he had his fallout with DC. And now he's with Top Shelf, who did From Hell. And he's done... Another trade paperback of the League, plus a Nemo trilogy starring Nemo's daughter. Yeah, I read Alan Moore's wiki article, and it's great to read as to why he left DC. Like, they promised him he could do whatever he wanted, no interference, but then... And interfered. <laughs> when he included Marvel douche 
as a douche product in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. They went, no, you can't do that. And it changed. And then other pokings at different companies. Yeah, it, it should be said, if you, if you read those comics, what you're talking about with Marvel douche, it's not a character. He would do these Victorian ads. And uh, he, he really grasped onto like the sexuality of the Victorian era. We think of it so repressed, but they were actually very sexually liberated. And he really plays that up, especially in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, when you like have the invisible man as the Holy Spirit knocking up Catholic girls in a boarding school. So, Jacob, have you read this one? Because I have read many Alan Moore, but this one I've never picked up a comic for. Yeah, I've read all of the League stuff. I I would say strong recommend for volumes one and two, as well as the Black Dossier. Century, look, if you want to see Mary Poppins fight Harry Potter, I I guess that's your thing. (laughs) It it didn't do a whole lot for me. I might. Can I say I might maybe on that one? My big problem with that is, look you got to know your literature mm. and pop culture. Like, this, the whole world of the League is like, what if everything in pop culture and literature, like, existed in a world? And so he gets into some very obscure references in Century, which is why it kind of lost me. But when he came back with that Nemo trilogy, I was really into that. Like, he had Captain Nemo's daughter taking on the uh, Charlie Chaplin's Great Dictator version of Hitler with, you know, <laughs> robots from Metropolis. It was great. Uh, if you get the references, they're fun. When he gets real obscure, they kind of lose the fun. I understand there are websites dedicated to annotating these because every panel has some obscure Easter egg or two in it. Yeah, there will be a background character, a a sign, something. Yeah, I've used those sites and sat there as I was reading these to get every single little reference he does. Well, you have to either be a genius or an idiot to attempt what this movie does. And I never thought this sounded like the stuff of a major motion picture blockbuster. That they are going to throw in Alan Quartermain, Tom Sawyer, Captain Nemo, the girl from Dracula, an invisible man, all of this stuff into a pool and think it would congeal. I mean, that's... Some tricky stuff. I wanted to know if it ever worked on the page. It does work on the page. I strongly recommend reading those if you like Alan Moore, especially the stuff he did with America's Best, Volumes 1, 2, and The Black Dossier. A lot of fun. Good reads. Okay, I will definitely have to pick it up. But we're not here to talk about the book. We're here to talk about this movie. And I will say, you're you're questioning this idea. I mean, Universal just tried to do this again with Dracula and Told, and they were going to kick off the Monster Avengers, basically. They still are, actually. The Monsters Avengers is coming. They're still going with that, okay. Yeah, Tom Cruise is doing it with The Mummy. That's the kickoff now. Yeah, but they tried it with Van Helsing and Hugh Jackman. and Oh, yeah, it's yet to take off yet, but they, they keep going. But this film, you ask if it was good on the comic, but what was happening is the producers were involved with America's Best Comics and found out that Alan Moore wanted to write this. They had this option for a movie, and this was in development before the first issue ever hit stands. Well, that kind of surprises me because I know James Robinson, who's a comic book writer, he was involved in the writing of this film, but there are a lot of similarities between the movie plot and the first volume's plot. Like, it's not a total departure. James Robinson was brought in to fix the mess the previous screenwriter Ah. had made. (laughs) They spent like a year working with another screenwriter who was unnamed, trying to work this story out, and he just didn't get it. And so they brought in this comic book writer who they thought got the spirit better and was able to put this draft together. And thus the film we have, which 
I was curious. The stuff I read is it differed from the comic in quite a few ways. 20th Century Fox insisted, foot to gravel, that there must be an American. Yeah, Tom Sawyer here, who is not a part of the original League. Again, with that world, Tom Sawyer could be in it because it's any literary character, any pop culture character. But yeah, they did Americanize this film. I remember hearing that, like, we got to have an American. So we don't know here in the States who Alan Quartermain or Dracula is, apparently, or the Invisible Man. So we got to have Tom Sawyer. Well, I must admit, I know Alan Quartermain as being the ripoff of Raiders from the Lost Ark <laughs> that Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone starred in for two terrible movies from Canon Film. But I didn't know this literary character. And I do think it's just ballsy to take books that are well over 100, 150 years old. No, Hollywood loves that. Copyrights expired. <laughs> no, but to throw them all in a cauldron and reference them like we would know what that is. I mean, I remember when Tarantino was making references to the 1930s and 40s movies in Inglorious Bastards, and keeping up with that felt like a challenge. To ask mainstream audiences to be aware of all of these characters, I never saw this as a big blockbuster bonanza. To me, this sounds like a quirky art movie. This sounds like something that would be like City of Lost Children or, you know, Terry Gilliam or something. Just something small and weird and certainly eye-catching steampunk. But I just never saw it as an action movie. And what we're talking about today is, yes, Arnie, as you pointed out, the follow-up to Blade for Stephen Norrington. He did some other stuff in between, but Blade was his directorial debut. He did something called The Last Minute in between. Okay. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying nobody paid attention. I hadn't heard of it until I was looking up what else he had done. But Blade really began his directorial career with it being such a hit and a fan favorite. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen ended it, whether it's voluntarily <laughs> or not. He has said that after working on this, just in the final stages of post-production, his experience on this film made him never want to work on film again. Sean Connery <laughs> said the same thing. Well, here's the thing with Sean Connery, and I don't know how much of this is Hollywood lore or what, but I, the story I've heard, the reason Sean Connery is in this film, he was offered Morpheus in the Matrix. And he's like, well, I, I'm not even going to try a Sean Connery impression, but like, what the hell? This doesn't make any sense. No, he was offered Dumbledore. He was offered Gandalf. He, Wizards? No, I don't want it. Th these are awful. And they all became hits. And so he's like, look, obviously, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to take the next script. So that's <laughs> the story I've heard why he ends up in this film. It's like this came across and he's like, I don't know, whatever. It, it's supposed to be a big hit. I'll take it. No, it's true. You, if you watch the bonus features on the DVD, Sean Connery literally says that. They ask him, why did you do this movie? He said, I didn't understand it, but because <laughs> I didn't understand these other ones, I figured I wasn't going to let this one go. He didn't just take the next thing that came across. He took the next thing he didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently no one else did either. But you know what? People have always struggled with steampunk. Has there ever been a hit... I mean, I just feel like it's not something for the mainstream. The idea that you're going to go back and do a retro future in which we have things from the past merge with technologies of the future that never existed. I mean, I love the idea of taking a hot air balloon to the moon. I mean, I saw Wild Wild West with Will, Will Smith. I saw Sky Captain, World of Tomorrow. Uh, you know, I even feel like the Sean Connery Avengers had some of these elements here where they, yeah, it's camp 
campy and it tends to lose its way is what I've noticed is they never know how far to push the strangeness of it. And ultimately, as in the case of the movie we're talking about tonight, it can go pretty far away from anything that seems grounded or understandable for a mainstream audience. And Stuart, what you are to animation, I am to steampunk. That's because you go to conventions and you have to endure all those cosplayers. Actually, I like some of the cosplay stuff, but I've seen Wild Wild West. I've seen (laughs) some of the TV series they did. Briscoe County was kind of like that, as I recall. It's just, I prefer stories like the original H.G. Wells stuff that was steampunk for its day, or as it was called then, like science fiction. (laughs) Yes. Versus trying to tell a retro story with futuristic accoutrement. And that's how this world works, at least in the comics. Like, the first volume, they're trying to make airships, and they're trying to get some chemical from some H.G. Wells novel about going to the moon that they used to fly to the moon. Here, though, in this film, it feels like, oh, we gotta make it more grounded, so we gotta have this weird, like, car we're gonna see, and Mm. the Nautilus is... Yeah, it feels like uh, uh, on one hand, they want it steampunk, but on the other hand, they want it grounded in reality. And I just I don't know how well that meshes together. Yeah, it's it's always a struggle for any filmmaker and for the audience. I feel like, Arnie, your perspective is one that many people do share. They just don't get it. They don't want to get it. But I like it. I just think from a design standpoint, it's very beautiful to look at a world like that. And I do like it in cosplay. I like it in art. It's just never a good story that is related to it, at least that I have found. Yeah, I'm waiting for the masterpiece. I'm waiting for the one to really show the world how good it can be. Yeah, you're still waiting. (laughs) It's not this film, but I will also say that I have seen this movie once before, and I didn't remember hating it as much as everyone else hated it. Yeah, this film has a horrible reputation, and I'm the same with you, Stuart. I, I saw it expecting the worst. It wasn't the worst. I don't get its reputation. I was out of the country the summer this came out, so I had no idea when it came out, how the reviews were, the box office. It looks like it was very poor. I saw it on video months and months later and just remember thinking that it was a very odd bird. I actually saw this during its theatrical run. We have a drive-in that does double features in my town, and it's a sometimes a fun night just to go out and get two movies real cheap. And the double feature this night was a one-two punch. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen let it off. Yeah, what did they team this up with? Hollywood Homicide was the second one that I saw. Starring another actor that always picks bad projects, Harrison Ford. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about his co-star, Josh Hartnett. Oh, no. No, he can't get into a good movie, (laughs) but Harrison Ford could. He just chooses not to. I remember that at that point, I think it was Mars. It might have been Venus. We were having some celestial thing where you could see another planet clearly visible in the sky. It was so much more interesting than League of Extraordinary (laughs) Gentlemen. I spent the whole time looking out my convertible window at a planet waiting for Hollywood Homicide. This movie was so bad, it made Hollywood Homicide look good in comparison. I have lived under the delusion that Hollywood Homicide isn't as bad as it is because it came on the heels of this. I went out of there going, what a piece of shit, and haven't looked back until it got put on the schedule. And I'm like... Ah, hell. Yes. But I came in, open mind, let's try it again. There's no planets. I'm in a home theater. I guess I have to pay attention. (laughs) We'll see if you drilled holes through your roof to look at the stars (laughs) while watching it. Was was it that bad? (laughs) Oh, something happened. I'm saving that, but there's, yeah. 
All right. Well, why don't we get into it then, Arnie? You give them the plot. We'll see if LXG is going to work for us now. It's the end of the 19th century, and the world is prepping for its first world war. A mysterious baddie calling himself the Phantom, but he's hip, so he spells it with an F, has increased international tensions, robbing a bank in England while pretending to be German, then assaulting Germany while pretending to be British. So the British Empire decides it's time to pull together a new League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Throughout history, at dire times, men of great ability were brought together to defend the Empire. Now, the mysterious British officer called only M is tasked to do so again, pulling in aging adventurer Alan Quartermain, played by Sean Connery, and then the rest of the actors don't matter, scientific wizard and seaman Captain Nemo, vampire bite survivor Mina Harker, and an invisible man. Not the invisible man because of copyright issues, an invisible man, this one being thief Rodney Skinner. Why isn't he black? Or is this not the Ralph Ellison version? <laughs> no, it's not the Ralph Ellison version. <laughs> okay, all right. Nor is it Hollow Man, nor is it Chevy Chase from the John Carpenter film. I mean, he may be black. We never do see him. <laughs> That's true. That is true. How great would that be? <laughs> the, the the League of Invisible Men. and <laughs> Ralph Ellison's <laughs> Invisible Man and this one teaming up. <laughs> the four are sent to recruit two more members. First, the immortal Dorian Gray, played by... Queen of the Dams, Stuart Townsend? That's what I know him from. It's the only thing you've done. Gray at first refuses, but when the Phantom attacks his home, he reconsiders. And that attack was only thwarted thanks to the intervention of American Secret Service agent Tom Sawyer, who has also come to try to stop the World War. Then the crew, joined by Sawyer, goes not so much to recruit as to capture Mr. Hyde, the hulking beast who sometimes transforms into nerdy, mild-mannered Dr. Jekyll. Finally, together they realize that the Phantom is going to try to destroy all of Venice, where the world leaders are meeting to talk peace. The League barely thwarts that plan, though it seems half of Venice is destroyed in the process, and Quartermain faces off with the Phantom, who is unmasked and revealed to be... M, who we saw once before. But returning to Captain Nemo's sub, the Nautilus, they find that first mate Ishmael has been killed by the traitorous Dorian Gray. They all thought it was the Invisible Man. But no, it's the immortal man who had infiltrated the group to steal their powers. He takes a skin sample from the Invisible Man, blood from Vampiric Mina, Dr. Jekyll's serum, and photos of Captain Nemo's tech. <laughs> because, you know, if I have a picture of a rocket, I can then build a rocket. <laughs> that is the funniest one to me. He's like, took a picture of, like, the steering wheel of the ship, and we're going to recreate this. <laughs> Eight times. <laughs> With all of this, M plans to start a world war, and he'll be an arms dealer selling super soldiers to the highest bidder. The League survives a bomb Dorian planted on their boat and proceeds to Mongolia, where M has a factory developing the weapons. A major fight takes place. Hyde has to fight a super Hyde made from his formula. <laughs> Mina fights and kills Dorian by showing him a cursed painting that was the secret to his immortality. The Invisible Man dies of third-degree burns, that's a little morbid. And finally, Quartermain faces off against M, who, yes, reveals himself to be Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, Professor James Moriarty. Moriarty spears Quartermain, but Tom Sawyer gets the sniper shot in to take down the criminal mastermind. And the League returned Quartermain to be buried beside his son in Africa, but Quartermain had once said he was blessed by a witch doctor that Africa would not let him die. And indeed, a random witch doctor shows up and starts to perform a ceremony, 
and a bolt of lightning strikes Quartermain's grave as credits roll. I think that bolt was meant to just make sure to kill Sean Connery's career, if the movie didn't. (laughs) Uh, I have a lot of behind the scenes on this that I got from fairly candid interviews that were on the Blu-ray and on the DVD. I was like, wow, you're really talking about this. Okay, well, we'll go with it. If you're going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. But yeah, opening up, I felt like this movie might actually have something. We start with a little bit of a scroll that just talks about what the technology of the time had been to, I guess, remind perhaps history illiterate Americans that in the 1800s, all we had was cavalry and horse-drawn cannons, not the stuff we're going to see here. Well, this is the fun of steampunk, is that talking about, you know, the future, what's to come, the 20th century weapons, they're going to invent a false history for how they come to be here. I think it's fun. And I don't know if that's necessarily for dumb Americans. I'm I'm just trying to put myself in the place of what these filmmakers are trying to go through. And if you're not paying attention to the year 1899 when this tank shows up at the beginning, it might not necessarily seem out of place unless you've read everything that's they've presented in front of you. So they, they got to set the setting somehow. I mean, they morph into this steampunk 20th century Fox logo and they try to set it up, but they got to tell you something to get your bearings right away because this tank has to seem out of ordinary when it shows up. Yeah, I like this scene. I mean, it's it's all these bobbies running around. You think it's like a Jack the Ripper scenario, and then all of a sudden, yes, it's it's World War One, twenty years early, with with tanks like rolling through the bank, and yeah, okay, it makes no sense. They're stealing drawings blueprints. of Leonardo. <laughs> no, they're not blueprints. Yeah, they are. Are but they say they are, but when you look at them, they're sketch drawings of buildings. <laughs> they're not blueprints. There's nothing about the layout of Venice from any image that we see. They are just pretty pictures of buildings on canals. But this is what they're going to use to plant bombs to blow up Venice. They've been well preserved for being from Leonardo da Vinci. This opening reminded me of one from a better movie that would come later, Captain America, when the Red Skull just kind of rolls in with a tank to that church to try to find the Tesseract. Only here they're trying to find the plans. I was kind of going with it. Until the Phantom is asked what he wants, and he's like, I want the world. And with his mask and everything, I got a strong Cobra Commander vibe off him. No, no, Destro. He's got that metal face. Well, Cobra Commander had the silver mask, and the way he hisses his S's in this one scene, I'm like, he's hissing. Am I watching G.I. Joe? I don't want to. Well, you you call out some of the dialogue here. I got to feel like this is really James Robinson. Like, and this stuff would almost work in a comic book. Like, what do you want? The world. I mean, the Phantom, very operatic. Yo. Trouble? I call it sport. Like, I feel like these are things I've read in comics, but it doesn't work on the screen here. Yeah, the screenplay, you called out the screenwriter, James Robinson. Is that someone I should know? No, I mean, he did in the 90s a a very, I highly recommend it, run on Starman, which is the most 90s comic in a good way that you'll read. It's all about a Generation X guy, like, that doesn't care about his father's generation, and and it's great. I can't recommend a whole lot more that he's done, though. Okay. But he's, he's pretty proficient in the comic book world. He's done a lot of stuff. He's the one letting this concept down at every turn here is that I love the art direction. This movie is beautiful to watch. If you turned off the sound, you would (laughs) highly enjoy this movie. 
the art direction, the costuming, being there is just great. I will grant them. They have a tremendous look here. I said I like steampunk in pictures and that I like it in costumes. They do it well here. I actually listened to the commentary and I really didn't need to. It gained nothing. Uh, the effects people and the costume designer. And they go into great detail about how they found every costume for each person and tried to make it period authentic and things. That shows on the screen. I don't know if they had enough money to make the film they wanted to make. Oh, no. There's parts that don't look so great. When we get to yeah. the CGI later, we're yes. going to be curtailing the compliments. But I'm just saying here in the beginning, it's a great looking world. Yeah, I, I say it stands through Venice and most of it. This whole thing, by the way, shot in Prague. Yeah. Oh, they went all over the world for this. I, I was surprised. No, no, they went to Prague. <laughs> Not according to IMDb. Then IMDb lied. They went yeah, to Prague. Okay. No, yeah, Arnie's right on this one. <laughs> oh, okay. They, they did go to a back lot or two in L.A. for some pickups. In Santa Clarita, that was the funniest thing. It, it's so like, for some pickups. Yeah. On yeah. IMDb, they have all these exotic locations, and then Santa Clarita, which is where I grew up, which is not exotic. <laughs> yeah, they were in the Czech Republic the entire time because they wow, could find okay. an ocean, they could find a desert. And I've been to Prague. It's a beautiful city. What I love is they said that Prague looks just like 19th century England without any set dressing. It does. I love Prague. It's a beautiful city for that reason and yeah it, it's gorgeously used here and this movie between the art director and the natural beauty i just think it's a fun world even when nothing is making sense yeah they go to berlin the next month uh, why is he shooting a harpoon into a line of hindenburgs uh, these zeppelins are being blown up <laughs> because the hindenburg yeah but why He's framing the British. He's attacking the Germans, yeah. pretending to be British. He's attacking... Did you read the newspapers? But why a grappling hook? You don't want to be connected to a flaming Zeppelin as it's falling on you. Because they hadn't invented bazookas yet? The rope doesn't stay attached. It was spring-loaded. That was a giant uncoiling spring. Oy, okay. Really? Yeah, so nothing makes sense here. And here's where I go instantly. I recommended the movie Constantine or Constantine purely because I enjoyed the world and the visuals and it was just kind of fun to be there. That's where I'm at with this movie. I know it's a whole lot of stupid, but it's professionally made. And once we get to Kenya and Sean Connery, I feel like I can finally latch onto something that is a lot of fun to watch here. This feels like Indiana Jones 4. So you've seen so many shitty, low-budget <laughs> movies the past three weeks that because it's professionally made you're willing to leg hump it God. yeah no seriously and that, that should count for something a great looking movie should be celebrated at any given time but particularly after what we've been through look i am not down on the movie at this point like this whole thing in kenya it's a little slapstick quartermain's gonna get in a fight with some of the phantoms people who have like what they saw back to the future three and, and made bulletproof vests and they got machine guns who has automatic guns but you know he's fighting with a lion's paw from a taxidermied lion and like they, they can't go r-rated with this violence so it plays a little slapstick i'm going with it at this point i'm like oh yeah indiana jones 4 if indiana jones 4 was this good i'd be pleased admittedly I will grant you that. This is, looks better and is more fun than Indiana Jones 4 and less infuriating. And Sean Connery, he is giving the same performance he gives all the time. I love Sean Connery, so I'm good with this. I just don't like his wig. He is the reason, though, we don't know any of the other actors here. <laughs> On this supposed $78 million budget, he was almost 20 of it. 
Mm, okay. I was wondering why there was absolutely no one else here to recognize. And admittedly, the stars of this are the literary characters. You don't necessarily need to have A-list names, but star power counts for something. And Sean Connery has a whole lot of it, and nobody else has any of it. That is the distraction. And if you're going to have an ensemble film, there should be some balance there. Definitely. To have one star that shines so bright... And a whole bunch of absolute nobodies. Now, I'm not saying they cast poorly. I think the guy who plays the Invisible Man is a lot of fun. We'll talk about Hyde when we get there. I can't say a whole lot about the rest of them. They're whatever. But the fact that I know this movie as Sean Connery and The Doors. (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem. Is that's even when I brought it up to people like, oh, yes, I'm watching League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. They were like, oh, wasn't Sean Connery in that? They, They couldn't remember the concept. They couldn't remember anything other than him. I mean, that's what they marketed this movie as. Sean Connery, yeah, more or less coming back. Imagine Indiana Jones 4, in which we go back and see Andy's dad have an adventure. I mean, it's because of this movie, you will never see that. (laughs) Alan Quartermain was one of the characters in which they based those serials that Indiana Jones came from. So allow me to show my yank ignorance. Who's Alan Quartermain? King Solomon's Mind. Yeah. Uh, was is the big one okay and is it's a book yes yes old books <laughs> yes 1850 but no copyright that's how they can use the name yes but uh, seriously you never saw the movie in the 80s richard chamberlain never oh wow okay well i wouldn't wish it upon you it's it's dreadful yeah. <laughs> but it is a version of indiana jones before there was indiana jones I mean, I get everything I need to from Connery's performance. He's an old adventurer. They set it up in the beginning. They talk about King Solomon's minds. I'm like, okay. But of all the characters in this, the star is the one I've never read. I have read books about all the rest of them. And I'll say this, whether this is a good or bad thing, who can say? But I don't feel like you have to really know these characters from literature to get who they are on the film. Like, we're going to get Quartermain's character and the deal with his son. Like, that's all on the screen. You don't have to have read King Solomon's Minds to appreciate or to get at least what they're going to do with the character here. Did they read it? (laughs) I honestly feel like there's not much literary about this. They assemble the world's greatest literary creations to blow things up. I swear to God, this movie has almost nothing to do with books. I, that's the shocker, is that these could be anybody, really, is that you're absolutely right. But that's not a compliment to this movie, that it doesn't feel like characters from past books. That is to its detriment, that they end up feeling like these generic types that have little or nothing to do with the characters they're named after. I I mean, admittedly, part of the joy of reading the comics is like, oh, yeah, I get that reference. And seeing how he's tying all these different literary works together, that is the enjoyment or sometimes detriment to it when you don't get all the references. Here, it is pretty generic feeling. Oh, and it's sometimes painful. I wonder if these lines would work in a comic book. Like we already said, Phantom, how operatic. That one might work. That's kind of like a Roger Moore line. It might be a Sean Connery line from a Bond movie. I, you know. 
The bedroom, Mina, does it give you memories or ideas? I'm like, ugh. The one that kills me is when they come out to see Captain Nemo's chauffeur call yeah. me Ishmael. I'm like, when did Moby Dick come in here? Shouldn't you be on a boat going after a whale, not driving Captain Nemo around London? Well, see, he survived Moby Dick, and the, the best he could get... Yes, that's the joke. The best he could get was to be on the... Uh, Nautilus. Although the Nautilus is pretty awesome. I got to say, all the design ideas for this movie, I'm down with. But uh, the team, what the next part of this is, what a large part of this movie is, is assembling a team that never coheres. I mean, I never feel like these guys are on the same page in any book. Yeah, we get this team being put together by M, who you're thinking James Bond. I don't know. Is that like an... You guys did the James Bond series. Is M an actual designation, like, in the British Secret Service? Yeah. But here's what's funny, is Alan Moore created M for the comic book, thinking of James Bond. And then they cast Sean Connery here after that. Playing Q, no less. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So, you have James Bond reporting to M. In fact, they were talking about having... Roger Moore also have a cameo in this. They decided to save it for the sequel. Oops. Roger Moore has been brought into those League books. Like, they do have a James Bond character now. They, they can't call him that. But this team. All right. So we got Quartermain with our main star. And then we second have Captain Nemo. Now, a long time ago, I read 20,000 Leagues. And I'm impressed that they did indeed make him Indian. Usually, you see him as a British guy. But the actor who plays him, I get very little out of him. He doesn't emote much. He's very stoic. I kind of like when he goes into ninja moves, I walk a different path. But the rest, he's just not a character to me so much as a statue. Correct. Yes. He's a guy in a turban and a beard. And he does some kung fu moves because everyone here has martial arts skills (laughs) because it's directed by the guy who did Blade. But where is the Captain Nemo from Jules Verne? Nowhere. Yeah, there's no spark to him. They bring him in as the Q. He's got the gadgets. He's got the sub. He's got the automobile. But I don't get anything out of him. He's just a body there. He's the one who has the least desires. At one point, he's worshiping Kali, which from... (laughs) Is he pulling hearts out of people? Yeah, I was thinking Temple of Doom. (laughs) And they... Use that as a suspicion that he might be a traitor. But I'm like, he can't be the traitor. He's absolutely nobody and wants nothing. He is just compliant to do whatever. And the only thing he wants is to brag about how fast his boat is. Yeah, he does seem like if you want a the badass character that doesn't really have any character, but does some cool things and has some cool toys like that is Nemo in this film. Yeah, I like his car and I like the ship. <laughs> you do? OK. Yeah, no, I think it looks cool. I don't know that it belongs here. And I certainly don't like the way it's used later in the middle of this movie. But yeah, no, I like all of these ideas, particularly the ship, that it looks like this giant sword cutting through the ocean. Okay, since you brought up this ship, here's my problem. Like, when we finally get the reveal, they're at a bay, like, in England, and this thing is, like, as tall as a skyscraper, and you can like the design. Here, you're worrying about ropes going into the Zeppelins. I'm like, how deep is this bay? (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't ask those questions. You shouldn't ask those uh, kinds of questions in a steampunk movie. Yes. That's my problem. They go so ridiculous at times with this. I'm just like, I don't get the physics here. Yeah, there is no physics, but I, it's, again, it's just like they're diving suits. You know what I really love is when you go inside, they have a, this half globe of the world and they kind of track where they are with this little <laughs> needle. It's like a record yeah. player. Yeah. I, it's just cool. It's fun. It makes you wish it had a movie that served it better. And of course they, we said in our Indiana Jones retrospective that Indiana Jones didn't originate the Red Lines traveling segue, but it's where I know it from, and they do it here. And in a movie with Sean Connery, I'm like, oh, so we're going to Indiana Jones, The Trip of the Nautilus. Yeah, ultimately, Captain Nemo gets them from London to Venice, but he doesn't have a character arc. That is the only arc you're going to see. He doesn't even get a good nemesis or much of a fight. Nope. I mean, what about some of these other characters? I don't know if they get arcs necessarily some are better characters you have mina harker who teamed up with van helsing once upon a time to hunt down dracula well i recently reread dracula i did a books and nachos on it one halloween not a fan controversially but she was dracula's victim and the wife of jonathan harker and harker the man and Van Helsing kind of teamed up, but I got to give Stoker some credit. Mina did a lot on her own, too. You know, Sister was doing it for herself back in Dracula. Here, they're saying that she retained some of the vampire powers in the novel. She was cured. I'm down for having a vampire show up, and a sexy one is better. I'm not sure they succeeded at sexy by casting Peter Wilson, but I'm still happy to have a vampire. Uh, she's a daywalker, right? She's like Blade. She can be in the sunlight. <laughs> she uses a mirror compact. Is any of this movie during the day, though, Stuart? That this movie seems so dark to me. Like it's all at night or in the submarine. No, she's definitely hanging out on the deck of the boat at some points in the daylight. Oh, that's right. There is some daylight. She checks the mirror quite often, and I, I think she's an okay-looking woman. I don't know why you're so harsh on Peter Wilson. I'm not saying she's ugly. I'm saying she's not a seductress. No. Her best moments, like where I do find her, I don't know if attraction is the right word, but I like the look of her is like after she's attacked someone and she's got that blood splattered on her face and she's got her yeah. compact out and cleaning up. She does have this like look of innocence after she's done this horrific thing that she sells me. Yeah, there's yes. something kinky about that. But no, she's just if they're bringing her in to seduce Dorian Gray, she seems a little frigid. I'm okay with her. I'm not okay with Dorian Gray. I don't know why they went there. Is this a Johnny Depp cosplayer? I thought it was just a Jim Morrison wannabe. <laughs> I don't get Jim Morrison, but Johnny Depp kind of makes sense. And this did open against Pirates of the Caribbean and lost very badly. Ooh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know, Stuart Townsend is mostly known as the guy that took over for Lestat after Tom Cruise said he wasn't doing the sequel to Interview with a Vampire. And then I never saw him again. And yeah, he... Like so many people here, he just brings nothing to the party. He's a vain, you know, we'll find out he's an enemy. It makes no difference to us. We don't feel betrayed because I don't think we were ever pulled in to his character. No, that's what I'm saying. Like Mina and Dorian, they have more character, but they don't have arcs, really. They're not that far away from Nemo. Like, we, we 
said a lot of bad about Captain Nemo, but I don't feel like these characters are given much more to do. They have more scenes, I guess. I actually think these two play well against each other. I think that, you know, I'm going to go back to our Legend of the Superheroes here and where Mm. each hero had its nemesis. And these two are each other's nemesis. We don't know that until Dorian Gray reveals himself to be the traitor, but... By having their seductress scene, by having him be a traitor, by having him have this immortality, he doesn't even necessarily want to be. He's being blackmailed by M because M has the painting that keeps him alive forever. There is more depth there than a stone statue, okay? There's there's something going on. Yeah, no, I agree there's more, but... It's not tremendous. None of these are quarter main, is what I'm saying. No. No, yeah, they're more interesting, I think, partly because I think Mina's more interesting and because they're both immortal. You know, they both have the same thing. They're going to be young forever. There's a wickedness to both of them. But no, let's not over-exaggerate it. Neither one of them are particularly exciting. Nobody on this team is very exciting. I guess the Invisible Man has some spunk. Yeah, he's my favorite outside of Quartermain. And he doesn't get much screen time. But He's invisible. But, yes. but I think he has some good jokes. I like his look with the pancake makeup. He's kind of got a Morpheus thing going on with some of those sunglasses. but Well, yeah, because they got to cover the actor's eyes. Here's, I wish he was just a total digital creation. Like, I love the look when it's just some of that white makeup smeared across his face and a trench coat. What's weird is they don't follow continuity here. Like, he's, you know, got a little bit of makeup smeared and he's invisible. Then they cut and they get in a car and it's like just the actor with white makeup all over him. And then they get out of the car and they're back to that digital shot. Like, just go digital. It looked good. Like, Do you know how much that cost, Jacob? They didn't have the money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. It, I'm sure it cost a lot, but it's it's the best digital effect in this movie. The effects work here are, are really, you can go from a great looking shot to a really terrible one very quickly here. I, I know why they did it, Jacob. I Maybe you could complain about continuity, but I think we're always at our best when we can see the actor giving a performance. And not to get too technical behind the scenes, but if you listen to that special effects commentary, the one thing I got out of it is a new effects supervisor was brought in with like six weeks to go or something insane like that because the last one wasn't working out. And then he hired 20 effects houses in order to (laughs) come in and do what needed to be done on a shoestring budget. Yeah, so much of this feels like, yeah, moments work and then some they just didn't have the time to fix that shot and they're butted up right up against each other. But for the most part, Invisible Man is cool. I had seen this a lot. You, I think, Arnie, you mentioned the John Carpenter movie Memoirs of an Invisible Man that had been out years before. And Hollow Man did it really well. I enjoyed Hollow Man. Yeah, Hollow Man. Yeah, I feel like there had been already movies to play with this. This wouldn't have been fresh for people in 2003 to see an Invisible Man. We had seen it a couple times. But this is not a bad version of it, effects-wise. Yeah. And then, that is the first crew. And I'll admit, just trying to get these guys together is dragging for me. It is taking too long when they get to Dorian Gray's house. And I'm realizing, thank God they don't have origin stories for all these people, but... Read the book. (laughs) All their different books. (laughs) Yes. It's still the origin of building the team is laborious. And then when we're at Gray's house and they get attacked by the Phantom who just happens to be there and... Yeah, come on. They're giving it away. Yeah, it's too obvious that the Phantom is there and doing these machinations. And he's also just standing there like 
not threatening. He's like, yeah, you guys want to join me? No, then we'll kill you. It looks foolish. Let's put a fine point on it. The performance, everything about this, this is a terrible villain. Seeing him stand there in that mask, giving that performance, even though we'll find out later that it's another man imitating something, that doesn't make it any less silly looking. This is not a credible threat. And I think that's just the big problem is on top of the fact that the team doesn't seem to be coming together, but they're coming together to fight. Basically, they're going to be the bodyguards for a bunch of world leaders in Venice so they don't get attacked by this guy. And then Tom Sawyer. I just do not think he fits in here. Shane West, not very familiar with the actor, seen him in. A few things, not, I mean, not very good ones. Uh, Dracula 2000. (laughs) I didn't really know him, but he has credits that I did know. Like, uh, strangely enough, Peter Wilson was in one TV show of La Femme Nikita, and he was in another one, (laughs) one that was just called Nikita. He also was on ER for a while, but Tom Sawyer. Here's the thing. I've read a lot of Mark Twain, so it's a character I know very well. I don't get any Tom Sawyer off him. I don't know. I don't see no, it. No, why not just make it Johnny Appleseed? I mean, yeah, you're right. It could be anything. Paul Bunyan, whatever. <laughs> you know, it doesn't something American. That's basically all he is. He's the token American. They're, they're like, what American novel do we have that's in 1899 that we can yeah. take from? That you're right. You've put a peg on it that I couldn't. Twain has such a Virtually poetic, ironic way of writing. And humor, too. Yeah. You know, he's funny. Mm-hmm. And this guy ain't funny. No. In deleted scenes, we find out he's actually on this mission to avenge his fellow agent, Huck Finn. I don't even re- remember that, but it just sounds awful. <laughs> uh-huh. Look, yeah. I, I, and again, I can see them trying. Like, I get why you have a younger character that shoots guns because he's crazy American, so he's always firing those guns. It's there to service the star of this film, Sean Connery's character, Quartermain. Like, I, they they attempt to do a story here, like this father yes. and son thing. Yep, That's a yep. big deal. I, I see it, but it's weird. It just, it doesn't work. Like, I could see what they're trying to do, but it doesn't. It falls flat. You don't feel it. That's the reason why. Because they're telling us, oh, I lost my son and blah, 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 blah. At no point do we feel that loss or see that connection between them. I think partly because, like so many actors here, I just don't think Shane West is that interesting to look at or is doing anything. Mina doesn't want to look at him. Yeah, I mean, all of them are just kind of boring. And the writing is the worst culprit here because I don't even understand the full story of Quartermain and his son. I'm like, oh, it's a trope. He lost his son. So we're just going to play on that trope. And Tom Sawyer is going to become the surrogate son. Is there more to it that I missed? That's how I took it. I wish that I had had more knowledge, more dialogue, more something to let me know Quartermain was all torn up about his son. He says he doesn't want to adventure because he lost people. And his son is certainly in that. But... I don't get that he's so torn up about it that having Tom Sawyer around is going to bring that back when he starts teaching him how to shoot and things. They try to make a relationship there. I don't think Connery's giving it either. I don't think Connery is bringing his best work. Perhaps I'm tainted by the behind the scenes knowledge of things going on here. No, he's not that great. And I think part of the problem is when we meet Quartermain back in Africa, like he's just fooling journalists with doppelgangers. Like in the comic, he is in an opium den, like drugged up, like 
Yeah, Connery said he wasn't doing that. Okay, you need something like that to see how rot he is over his son dying. Like, him just hanging out in a bar in Africa doesn't do it. I still think he's fun to watch. I mean, I'm not saying it's one of his best, but he's better than he was in Medicine Man or Meteor. Or I mean, I've seen Sean Connery give some shit performances, and this is by far a much better one. I, I think he's trying, but it's not his best. I think he's delivering his lines well. I don't think he's playing well off his co-stars is where I'm going to faint him. I agree. Agree with that, and I think part of it is that his co-stars aren't a particularly attractive brood, and I don't think that the writing makes any sense. But okay, I'm throwing that out because I'm really trying to like this movie as just a visual spectacle. I'm trying to think of this as all right. What if this is just a gaslight superhero Justice League that we're basically just watching superheroes? Maybe they don't serve Jules Verne. Maybe they don't serve Twain. But can they just work as superheroes in 1899? That's what I'm judging this movie on. But yes, now that they're heading to Paris to get <laughs> Mr. Hyde. Now, I, I read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when I was in like middle school or thereabouts. Me too. I loved that book. This is not Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde could walk the London streets and be mistaken for a human, and then go rape some women. This is the Incredible Hulk. I mean, th this is taken from the comic. This is how Moore plays him as this big monstrous being. But is this a practical costume? Like It is indeed, yes. It is part puppet. Here's what they said. The Hulk was coming out the same year as this, Ang Lee's Hulk. And they had like 200 million for CGI for Hulk. And they had like 10 million here. So they're like, if we're going up against that, let's not even try it. Let's just make a suit. It's not much worse than Thing Lee's Hulk, but, you know, that one had some dicey effects as well. No, I, I like this as a practical suit. Like later on, when we get super hide. That's a different story, but for a practical effect, it's pretty good. I think there's some obvious CGI matting going on yeah, yes. because they're, they're still filming this with film so you can see the difference. So when Hyde is with them and supposed to be giant, I can tell he's not really there, but there's a guy in a suit for almost all the scenes. At the end fight, they do have CGI Hyde going up against another CGI Hyde, but it looks good. It moves well. I thought it was CGI is the best compliment I can give it. <laughs> Again, for me, it's shot by shot. Some shots are better than others. And sometimes I'm with it and sometimes I'm not. Overall, I guess what I'm really wondering by this point is why is everything being shot at or blown up? Why can't we have scenes where characters are talking to each other and convincing us through dialogue? I guess because they don't have it in the script. But yeah, we just jumped to Paris. It's in the middle of a chase scene. We don't even really know what is happening. And they're shooting at him. They shoot him until he runs into a snare. And then that's it. We're off to the adventure. And then the movie does slow down. But for this first 30, 40 minutes, it's just a series of explosions. It's 40 minutes to get the team together. And despite being full of explosions, I'm finding it very laborious and dull. I'm hoping that once they get Hyde on board, that they can now have an adventure. We got through the getting together. Okay, let's do something interesting. Although I got to say... Of all the actors, I do think Jason Fleming as Jekyll and Hyde gives the second strongest performance in the film. He may not be as fun as Skinner, the Invisible Man, but... He has conflict. I, I mean, yeah. I, because yeah. he's two personalities, and I, I buy his conflict. 
he plays both well. And the scene where he's like, he's Jekyll and Hyde is appearing in reflections and trying to torment him into drinking the serum. He plays both those roles so well that I buy that scene. The problem is he's not allowed to interact with anyone. His very nature is to be solitary. And when he's Hyde, he's basically just running around punching things. And when he's Jekyll, he keeps to himself and is kind of creepy pervy yeah so. he doesn't keep to himself that was so weird there's a scene on the nautilus where he's like spying on dorian and mina watching them like kind of have this romantic moment and he's got this pervy smile on his face i didn't i don't know is that from the book is he a pervert is he a peeping tom well what they say here there's some line about him maybe not even needing the potion to talk to hyde the sense is that Hyde is going to overtake him and that he doesn't even really need to drink the potion to channel it. That's almost like a crutch or something. That's what gives him the physical transformation. But Hyde is always there in his reflection, is always baiting and taunting him. I do like that as a conflict. I think the performance is okay. Yeah, it's good enough. But why do they need him? And again, what are these people going to do when they get to Venice? How are they going to protect world leaders who are trying to stop the Phantom from baiting them i guess the problem is there's no sense about what these characters can do together to help the problem at hand i'll give the movie a mulligan in that they were never intended to help anyone anyway but the characters should at least have a plausible belief themselves that they can do something yes. even if the entire point is for them to not and just to get them together to steal their powers which I don't think you need them all in the same place to do, by the way. No, that that's a dumb plan. It, it seems weird. Okay, I get it. You want Captain Nemo because he has a sub. I don't know how you steer that thing around the canals of Venice, but he can you get don't. underwater. Fine. Quartermain, he's an adventurer. Fine. Why do you need anyone else? What did they steal from him? Anything? They needed him because he was the only one who would be able to capture Hyde. That is Quartermain's only purpose. Ah, uh, okay. But but I'm talking about them as a team, saving everyone in Venice. I, I get why you want Nemo. I get why you want Quartermain. I don't know why you need anyone else. If you're just looking for bombs underneath the city, go in your submarine. But they didn't know necessarily what they were looking for at first. And when they get there, it's already started. And so they have to blow up a building. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is where it all falls apart. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. I, I am holding on, trying to say I'm having a good time up to this point. When we get to Venice, f*** it. This movie is over. And I'm not having a good time up to this point. But my hope was, once they get together, then this movie would click. And it's when they get to Venice. And I, I watched this movie two and a half times for this review. Explain this. It, it was only on the third time watching the scene that I really understood what the hell was going on, okay. why they were driving the car. Yes. I understood that Nemo had trackers and missiles on that sub, and so he could fire wherever the car went. And I got that they had to blow up a building to stop buildings from getting blown up. But it wasn't until the third watching that in the midst of exploding sounds, I caught the line of dialogue that says, it's a chain reaction. We must blow up this building to stop the chain. But that doesn't make any sense. There's only one explosion with buildings coming down. There's no chain of reaction. Well, that's what they're telling us, though, Stuart, is there's one explosion. It starts a chain reaction. They need to 
cut that off at some point. So they drive that car to wherever the last flying. That's never visualized. I want that to be clear. We never see that that is stopped by that building exploding. What we see is a car driving into a building and then firing a missile into it. And we do not see how that stops the sinking of Venice. Well, no, but we see that the other houses stop sinking into the water, which is what's happening is the chain reaction is crumbling the support structure. And so somehow by blowing up this building first. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, somehow. Exactly. Terrible. This is only my second time watching this movie. I remember this being the climax. So (laughs) to my chagrin, when I'm only halfway through this film, I got like another 50 minutes, an hour left. To me, it was the climax. It was after this scene. I'm like, Mars. (laughs) This is, I I mean, I get you can do ridiculous things. I'll accept that there's this, you know, luxurious car here and all of this stuff, but it has to make sense what they're doing. And this now, I mean, we're stranded. We get to see the team kind of come together. We get to see them do various things. Quartermain and Sawyer shoot people. Mina turns into a vampire and eats people. God. Yeah, no, she doesn't turn into a vampire. She turns into a flurry of bats. No, I, I think she summoned the bats. No, no. At what point you see a human in there, it's really bad effect. She's like a ghost or something in those flurry of bats. But where do the bats come from? Belfries. Are you telling me that Venice is filled with bats that will just fly to her? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Venice in the late 19th century was filled with flying vermin. Yes. Are, are you speaking factually or you're just giving it to the film? I'm just giving it to the film. It was in the Da Vinci drawings. I saw them too. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, th- this is a horrible effect, by the way. Oh, awful. And the bats look bad. Mina looks bad in the bats. Mm. The movie Mm-mm. looks bad. Mm-mm. And we're like halfway through this movie and all of a sudden, all this has become is a shouting, sweaty, explosive mess. Yeah, it's just about blowing things up. Again, I ask, why would you bring all of these literary characters or even superheroes just to blow up things? Have you seen the Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron? No, no. The Avengers had great moments of interpersonal tension and dynamics. It's about the characters. This is nothing to do with these characters. These characters have nothing in common with one another. They don't interact. It's a huge mess. And do they ever even like each other? That like That's the thing. Do they ever finally come together where you like the Avengers they all fight each other the first half of that film because Loki's messing with them but then they become friends here I don't know if they ever like each other besides maybe Tom Sawyer and Quartermain they agree that they all hate Dorian Gray and I do too and that's what brings them together and unifies them is that they at least have the solitary purpose of wanting to kill their spy in their midst, which, again, this was a weird strand. In the journey, they believe that the Invisible Man was stealing Potion and taking the pictures, and the Invisible Man decides not to speak up for himself, but allow this mischaracterization to be... No, he stows away on a little mini-Nautilus that Dorian Gray... And this, this is, like, one of the worst scenes... Dorian Gray steals this little sub from the Nautilus. He, like, opens the front hatch so he can see it's Dorian in there and, like, drives it towards the characters and then does his maniacal laugh and turns around and drives away. I'm like, oh, that is an awful cliche and you just did it. Yeah, and you guys have it right. What makes this not a good super team movie? What 
God help me, the Justice League movie we reviewed two weeks ago had that this doesn't is some iota of chemistry among some of the characters. And that had bad chemistry, but there was at least a couple characters that clicked. Yeah. Here, this is like they're not even really sharing the same screen. It's like all of them filmed separately and they composited everything together. But I have a firm belief that what we are seeing is not the fault of any of the people involved, Stephen Norrington, Sean Connery, James Dale Robinson, I'm going to give you all a pass and point my finger directly at 20th Century Fox. This film is the epitome of studio meddling. Every story I read had that there were studio execs over Norrington's shoulder the entire time. They hired him because he was a success with Blade, and then they didn't trust him to do a dang thing here. He had a contract for a PG-13 film. They wouldn't even send it to the MPA. They just told him, don't even film that. That might be R. And they had the stunts written before the script, which is more and more common. See every Michael Bay film. Yeah. They started filming before the final act was written. Yeah, this was stories I heard about the later Die Hard movies, too. Yeah, and and that never works well. And then Norrington was starting to bend under the pressure, and Connery was being non-compliant, and the two of them got into apparently really, really bad fights on set, and so Connery was trying to undermine Norrington. Everybody walked away from this looking bad, and the director and the star never worked again. And I'm, I'm going to blame Fox for just... Rushing the film that took an extra year to write, they wanted something out that summer, they wanted it to be explosive and have the widest appeal, so they're like, damn it, you're going to have an American, damn it, you're going to have an explosion every 10 minutes, and damn it, we're going to do this, that, the other, and you're going to make sure this is the softest PG-13 ever. There's never a good film that goes that way. Well, here's what I would say to that. I think any studio looking at this property would not understand it and would want to insert as many commercial aspects as possible. I understand that impulse, even though it is so detrimental, but I can understand why a studio would do that. That is why you don't make this movie as a big budget studio action movie. You make it small. You make it about the characters. You get a quirky director that understands this stuff and has done it before. Correct. Michelle Gondry, not the guy from Blade. You know, you do weirdness on a small scale you don't make it a spectacle and even though i love the spectacle of this it's the only thing to love about this it is at the cost of your brain cell and you you mentioned like terry gilliam like the adventures of baron munchausen like that's got better effects than this does and i'm sure the that budget was much smaller than this one year like i just feel like if you get a director that gets this kind of sensibility they could do more with even though the budget might not be there. Yeah, this should never have been a big blockbuster. It was conceived inappropriately. Yeah, and I think a case of too many cooks. And so what we've got here is something that just the longer it goes, the Mm. worse it gets. Yeah, it becomes incomprehensible here in the second half. Yeah, M now revealing himself to be Moriarty after the Venice fight. I didn't get that reveal because we'd only seen M once. Yeah, that's the biggest problem of this entire movie to me is when they unmask him and Connery goes, you. And I'm like, who? 
if he had been like, hey, it's steampunk. Can they give us a video phone so that he could like show up and go, how's it going a few times? Then I might have clicked who the hell this guy was, but that he's this strange M from the beginning. And then we see him with latex over part of his face and Connery's reaction. I'm like, I care why? And we hated this guy in Mission Impossible 2 as well. I also think it's some of the, it's just the actor is unappealing, both as the Phantom and as Moriarty. I just Was think- he the actor I really liked who played the bad guy in part two? He was the guy that played, you liked it? Artie loved it. That 20 minutes walking down a dock, you enjoyed that? <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the tape, I recommended it. Yeah, he really liked that one, Stuart. Yeah, I did. Ugh. Well, anyway, I feel like the problem is that the villain in general, performance, writing, costuming, everything about Phantom is dismal. And then they leave a phonograph for them to listen to, and the phonograph has a tone that will set off a bomb when a timer just won't do. But of course, we don't want to sit there watching a record, so interspersed with that is old-timey movie footage that doesn't exist of the villain explaining to the camera what he's done. It's bad. was so weird. I swore you see Mina like dropping the needle as this record's being cut. I guess it was just some other female that was helping him, but I'm like, wait, was that her? Like, it's so confusing because this style of cutting to an old-timey black-and-white film has not been used thus far in this film, and all of a sudden, here it is. That didn't actually bother me. You know, I took it as a stylistic choice to show this is what happened in the past when they were recording this phonograph. I caught that the film, like, stuttered, but I went with it as a way of showing us this is not actually happening live. You were seeing something that happened before if they had videoed it. I, I meant what I said. We don't want to sit here watching a record play. I mean, but yeah, they needed something visual to do. But yeah, again, all of this is sending a, transmitting a signal that's going to blow up the sub. But Hyde will save the day. No, he's the only one that could hear it. Well, yeah, I guess later on, once the bomb goes off, because... He could hear that high signal. He's saying, turn it off, turn it off, but it blows. And then he finally hulks out because he could pull some lever that does something and drains some water. Right. What would he know about this ship? I mean, again, I shouldn't ask these questions. Well, Jekyll is a doctor. We should take him as general smart guy. And Because Jekyll is a doctor, he knows how to stop, plug a hole in a sinking sub. How many times have we seen Dr. Know-it-alls in these kinds of movies? I'm a proctologist and a dentist. Well, they're all doctors. Mina is a doctor. Mina was the one that picked up the powder and said, oh, this came from a camera. Yeah, she's got test tubes she's doing (laughs) stuff with that never pays off. You know, again, poorly defined characters, poorly defined powers. Uh, I mean, talk about poorly defined powers. There is a hole in the sub and it's going to submerge later on in the film. I guess if I was a doctor, I could understand how that works. I don't want to understand anymore. I'm I mean, I can I can throw some things at here like there's often thick doors you can close to stop the yeah. water from infiltrating the whole ship. Stop and- the leak further, but they're using that ship for the they go to Mongolia in this thing. <laughs> Yeah. And again, with steampunk, it defies science as we know it. And it takes, you know, an old fashioned idea. I can forgive it only so much. And this movie has broken that promise. And there's 40 minutes to go. Like so much steampunk. I mean, that Will Smith movie. I enjoyed that much longer than most people. And then the spider showed up. when you get a steampunk spider. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It finally breaks. 
they finally go so stupid that you just go, ah, damn it. Another one that just is not going to work. And that's another film that also suffered from heavy studio interference. But yeah, here, the worst part to me is when I realized we have 40 minutes to go after the submarine thing. We've got all this stuff going on to Mongolia where the Invisible Man is going to walk through snow naked. No boots. No, no, you forgot the mo- the big symbolic moment, the big character moment for Quartermain. <laughs> to, to say I didn't give a shit about it is different than rem- forgetting it. <laughs> Come on, he sees the Siberian tiger. Everyone wanted to forget it when the white tiger mauled Siegfried and Roy a few months after this movie came out. Even that scene lost some of its charm. It's like, maybe we don't like these white tigers. Okay. But yes, this is a star vehicle mostly for Connery. They're trying to placate his ego. He's the tiger that may be put out to pasture. He's got this sun figure with Tom Sawyer. He's trying to train to shoot and trying to protect him so that it doesn't die like his son. They're trying to give him things to do. And I do think that, yeah, if you're going to give somebody something to do in this movie, he's the one to give it to. But it's not helping this movie. Yeah, but the Invisible Man shows up naked in the snow Funny story. Okay, I want to hear this now. (laughs) (laughs) This whole movie, everyone thought Skinner was the traitor. And here he comes back and he's accepted by the group because they know he wasn't. Well, he's walking in the snow. Sean Connery was supposed to put his arm around the invisible man like that a boy. And Sean Connery's like, but he's naked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I already see where this is going. (laughs) So his tallywhacker's out. Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) <laughs> but he's not really there, Sean. Come on. What I, what I did, was wondering, because they go into the cave, and now the Invisible Man does have his white makeup on. Where is he hiding that white makeup? That is what I want to know at this point. That, that is where my mind has gone, because this film is not keeping me entertained. If he shoves something up his ass, is it still invisible? We see him drink something, and we yeah, see it I going think it down. Would, I think it wouldn't be. We see, yes, exactly. When he ingests things in his internal organs, we can see that moving around. So there is no hiding that cream. But only for a short while. It then finally disappears as it gets absorbed, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they brought it with them. Maybe it's Mina's makeup that makes her show up in mirrors. Maybe, like everything else in this movie, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah. No, what matters, I guess, is that there's this big factory that's making not a lie. And are, are those robot men or are those just like armor suits for people to fight in? I don't know, but it's so gorgeous. Don't you wish this movie earned this climax? <laughs> oh, no, I totally wish. Like in the comic, they do this whole thing with Fu Manchu and they have like this big Chinese army with like kites that come like i wanted something glorious like that we are not we're gonna see one little robot walking around shooting flames in this final scene yeah they said they couldn't do fu manchu because he's not public domain Hmm. nick cage wanted to play him (laughs) that would have been great but i thought those were guys in armored suits we talked about armored plating earlier in the movie it's just it's steampunk they should be robots well they are and they no i get the sense that they are playing up to the iconography of world war 1 and world war 2 that this is the coming centuries war machines that the, that is coming early that this is the dawn of that monstrosity I, I like that as a concept but let's talk about the execution yeah and then there's these battles which is just a flurry of noise but then again i felt this way about blade are you not going to give norrington any blame i'm not i'm not i think blade the blade had a bad ending but i thought it did very well with what it had and the actors and the story the whole 
reshot ending of La Madra. Horrible. Mm. But the rest of that film, I so much enjoy. And here, yeah, obviously he's somewhat to blame because he didn't have the balls to say, do it my way or I quit. He should have been Alan Smithy or he should have walked or he should have had some balls. But here, his biggest fault is continuing. Yeah, he wanted to get paid. I can't blame him for that. But yeah, it's, and the fact that he hasn't made a film again is telling. I mean, Sean, from what I understand, medically can't make more films. Yeah, he did do some voice work in a really bad animated film. But as I understand it, he had just such a bad experience filming this and the long days and the effects work and the trouble with Norrington. And Norrington didn't like him very much either. And he was having knee problems. He just decided he didn't like filmmaking anymore. I've heard rumors of bad health currently, but those rumors weren't going around in 2003. In 2003, he decided to retire after this. And this movie was why, he, it, per him in interviews. Yeah. I mean, it's not his worst movie by a long stretch, but I could understand why you would throw in a towel from an experience this bad. This is obviously not going to be your Matrix or your Lord of the Rings. And I think Norrington could have gotten more director gigs if that's what he wanted to do. But Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that. You can re you can do something smaller. You know, they'd, they'd hire him for something. He walked away in disgust. Yeah, he's still doing effects work and makeup work in certain films, but... I think this was him saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, I'm sure people weren't banging down his door mm -mm. after this. Mm -mm. I'm not going to ask him after Blade <laughs> in this. No, that's fine. I'd ask him after Blade. But yeah, this whole fight at the end, when they all put their hands on top of each other, that is an unearned <laughs> moment. <laughs> I, I just find it funny that Moriarty, like he runs away, like everything's getting blown up. And he's got this little satchel with like his Mr. Hyde formula and Invisible Man formula. It's like these little cases that he's going to go door to door selling. Like plans <laughs> folded up for, to make your own not a lie in there. Like it is ridiculous. You know what disappointed me is I wanted the super scroll of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I wanted an invisible vampire Hyde. <laughs> yeah, that seems like what you would do. Like, yeah, the super soldier. But instead, it's all. Is there another vampire that fights? I know there's like another invisible man. We'll get a super hide, which, okay, no money for the effects there, right? It was said that there were some vampiric soldiers, but I don't know that we saw them in action. Yeah, they didn't make an impression on me. Also, I definitely think they stole effects directly from Attack of the Clones. ILM worked on this. They show the machines in action. This is right off of that Geonosin assembly mm -hmm. line with the lava that pours on Amidala. Yeah, I can see some of that. Oh, that's right. That is right. It, that's what it was reminding me of. Oh, it's it identical. It yeah. is. I couldn't find any proof that that's the same assets. But come on. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I definitely think they wuss out here. And now that you're saying the, the fear about the R rating, there's a whole thing between Hyde and Super Hyde where they're fighting underneath icicles. I'm like, well, of course they're going to fall and pierce him. And then that like they don't do that. It just like some rocks. No, they just dodge icicles for like five minutes. Yeah, like there's no blood. There's It's bloodless. Even though you got a vampire here, she might wipe off a little red off her face. But there's no thrill to these fights. Even if you could forgive this movie its plot, there's nothing to this action. It's a bunch of flips and explosions. And this whole fight between two immortals is very quick. They slice each other and they bleed black or they have black wounds because red is R. But then 
It's very quick for her to impale him against the wall and say, oh, look, a picture of you. You're dead. <laughs> well, admittedly, that is the story that they've framed yeah. this around. But yes, how unsatisfying to be shown uh, painting. Was the whole reason Dorian betrayed him because he wanted to get that picture back? Yes. Yes. Moriarty stole it and that this is how he would get it? Yes. Yes. Now, did you guys get, because I sure as hell didn't, in two watchings of the climax, the other Invisible Man was actually a character in this movie. It wasn't just somebody who showed up at the end. It was Sanderson who went and recruited Quartermain in that first scene. What? No, I, I, I'll i be honest. Like, this all just washed over me. It, it's dark. The effects aren't that great. It's loud. No, I didn't know this was someone we were supposed to care about. That was the guy that picked up Connery at the beginning. Why did he betray him? He was working for M the whole time. Oh, so he was recruiting him to kill him? He was recruiting him to get Hyde so that M could steal all the powers, but he was M's lackey, and so here he became invisible. I okay, I missed something crucial when I understood that Quartermain was the only person that could catch Hyde. All right, that was his whole function. So they could have killed him at any time after Paris. Yeah, and if they had, they probably would have won. Okay. And in fact, they tried to with that whole bomb thing. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> and they do kill him, at least temporarily. We're, we're led to believe that, yes, he goes down. Tom Sawyer has to get the kill shot. You know, he has to live up to Quartermain, apply the lessons to markmanship. Don't shoot American. They take him back to Africa. And yes, zombie Connery. <laughs> How weird would this sequel be? As bizarre <laughs> as this movie is, the piecemeal way that it's been assembled. Can you even imagine a zombie Alan Quartermain? That is a thing, like reincarnation with Quartermain. So it's not like they totally made it up. Here was my theory going in, and I was going to say it on the show. And then at the very end of the effects commentary that I just finished an hour ago, they validated. They did this to have their cake and eat it, too. They weren't sure if Connery would want to come back for a sequel. <laughs> Just make sure he didn't understand the script, and he would. But if he did, they wanted to have that door. They also felt like even if he didn't want to come back, they thought Quartermain was too vital so they could recast with young Quartermain resurrected. Yeah. The final thing is <laughs> the director really wanted a last shot of a hand coming out of the grave. I was waiting for that. Did they ever film it? He tried. The filming didn't work. The effects people, the writers, they're all like, that's way too carry. But <laughs> I was totally waiting for a hand to grab that gun out of the dirt. Yeah, Norrington wanted that shot. I'm just wondering where this witch doctor came from. That was so out of nowhere. It was just It's like, Africa. They just, they're all over the place, apparently. You racist. Well, based <laughs> on Victorian literature, that's probably their depiction of Africa. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, there's nothing progressive about Alan Quartermain in the Dark Continent. But fortunately, this guy's not magical enough because Connery didn't come back and there are no movie sequels to this. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Jacob. The interesting thing with this one is, like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, why can't I even enjoy this, like, on a just a dumb action film level? Like, because that's essentially what this film becomes. It's just a dumb, explosive action movie, and it doesn't even really work that way. And I do feel like what sinks this movie is, it's like a death by a thousand paper cuts, or to go with my sinking metaphor, I don't know, poking the hole with a thousand paper cuts. All these little things that just 
make it seem off. Like the characters never feel like a team that come together. No one has any arcs except Quartermain. Like the physics are just a little bit off. Like how is this huge sub floating around through Venice? And then, yeah, the the action, the second half, just it becomes incomprehensible and this big mess. But I don't get why people say this is like the worst thing. Like the joke is it made Sean Connery retire. It was so bad. I, I don't know if that's really why he retired because this film was so bad. Because I just I don't see it in that light. Stewart said, are these films getting better as we get closer to Batman v Superman? Yeah, th- this is better than Gen 13. It's still a not recommend though, but it's a more mild not recommend. It's not a great film. I can see someone that just likes action movies might enjoy this. But the characters don't work. I, I don't feel for any of them. Their story isn't interesting. And then it just becomes too loud and noisy by the end of it. Stuart. Yeah, this is a cautionary tale about letting Hollywood adapt things. I mean, this is every stereotype about what Hollywood tries to do to a property it doesn't understand and has no business trying to put its imprint on. If you weren't going to adapt Alan Moore the way that he wanted to, they probably should have never touched it. You'll never be able to do that according to Alan Moore, so. Well, you know, that's Alan Moore, and I don't agree with that, but I do feel like this is a far cry from From Hell, which came out a few years before, and to my mind was a pretty good movie. This is a pretty bad movie, unfortunately. I could have given it a green arrow for half of it, but once it hit Venice... Uh, the stupid meter is off the chart at this point. There's only so many things I can forgive. And despite its great art direction, costuming, and just the fun concept of it all, it really just becomes unbearably stupid. And yeah, other than Connery, maybe Mina, Invisible Man, when you can see him, there's just not a lot of fun to the performances here. It feels dreary. The actors wear the unhappiness of the shoot on their faces throughout. And so, yeah, you know, it's sad because there's so much about this that I like. I I could almost give it a pass, but really, ultimately, I think I just want to read the comic. This is a bad movie, so not recommend. But better than anything we've seen so far by a large stretch. I want to say, after hating the last three, here's one that I don't hate. I hate it. I hate it a lot. I really do. Again, one of the worst things a movie can be for me is dull. And this, despite having bombastic sounds the whole way, was so dull. I'm going to tell you a true story. I'm watching this movie. The reason I watched it two and a half times. Once is because it had pop-up video commentary. hate that, but made me watch the movie a second time. First time I watched it, halfway through, I get a phone call that my father has had a stroke and is hospitalized. Oh my God! Yeah. And part of me was like, thank God I have a reason to turn this off. That's how bad this movie is. I was so happy to turn it off and to be able to deal with a problem I can solve, like my (laughs) father's health care, versus watching this movie that is completely unsolvable, incomprehensible, and dull. Okay. I've... Don't ever watch this movie. There's nothing... Don't... There are many things that are enjoyable about this movie. There is nothing that makes this movie worth existence. Nothing that they did right can help the fact that what they did wrong is make a movie and tell a story and have good acting and have writing that makes sense. I don't give a shit if you have the world's best set decorator and art designer if nothing else comes together. That's a photograph. It's not a film. 
this movie sucks. I liked last week's movie a million times more. This one is awful. God awful. What about Justice League and Legends of the Superheroes, though? Better than that. More competently made, but less enjoyable. It's as enjoyable, probably, as the really dull 90210 superheroes, but actually less enjoyable than the car wreck debacle of the cheap upholstery wings of Legends of the Superhero. I found more to keep me engaged slightly to Legends. All right. So none of us want a sequel to this, but I hear Fox is toying with a TV series. There's rumors, yeah. A, re- a reboot's coming. They kind of already have. I don't know if you guys saw Penny Dreadful on Showtime, but they took a whole bunch of literary horror characters like Frankenstein, and I, I won't spoil it, but they kind of already have borrowed some of these ideas. I think it could work. I think that, that you could do this as a continuing series, and it would be much more satisfying. You certainly could develop the characters. Well, you know that Fox and, in fact, Alan Moore got sued Over this not being an original concept, somebody claimed that he had sold Fox a script or chopped to Fox a script called Cast of Characters in the mid-90s. That was this concept of a bunch of literary characters coming together for an adventure. And it is that lawsuit, not anything artistic, but that lawsuit that made Alan Moore despise his film adaptation. He actually said that testifying in the deposition was so bad he would have been better treated if he, quote, had molested and murdered a busload of retarded children after giving them heroin. Oh my God, Alan Moore sounds like a pill, but... Uh... <laughs> so it, it it was that. He said that he didn't care if people screwed up his comics. He considered them unfilmable, and they could go make movies with them as long as he never had to see them. But once this lawsuit came about because of the movie and 20th Century Fox's involvement, he started asking his name to be removed from all future films. Ah, so that's what did it. Okay, it isn't because the movies are so bad. Because even Redetta is a pretty good movie, and God knows, you know, this could have been... He has nothing nice to say about Hollywood and their ability to adapt his stuff. I mean... But some of that may be pretension. Some of that may be... No, 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 I think a lot of it is. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to put that on... A lot of things can be adapted and it will dissatisfy the original creators, but that doesn't mean the adaptation is bad. I'll leave it at that. He does say something that I really strongly agree with, and when I read it, it clicked for me. He said, if we only see comics in relation to movies, then the best that comics will ever be is films that don't move. It's like, he, he kind of has a point, because I see today's comics as just trying to be movies that cost six dollars on a page and how many deadpool fans do you think there are now that have never read the comic it's because of that movie yeah i mean i do feel like the greatest popular forum for comic book characters is happening in the movie theaters i don't feel like it started a renaissance of readers or illustrators the the sales don't show that at all yeah i mean and the tv series i gotta say that uh constantine tv show not so great so i don't know maybe league won't work but i do feel like Looking at this concept, it's best shot of ever working in a visual medium, not comic books, would be as a TV series. It seems to be the right place to take it. 
whether Alan Moore likes it or not, whether it really works or not. I guess it will depend on acting and budget and, and all those things. But I wouldn't mind seeing them try. If they made a series, I would try to watch it. You know, I think it's a fun concept. And maybe that's because I've read so many of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics. Like, I know what could be done. And that's fun seeing things. I mean, look, we're in this millennial generation where everything's a remix. This is like the perfect idea for remixes. Like, take everything we've known in pop culture, jumble it all together, make mystery stories, sci-fi stories out of it. It it could be fun. I might be interested. I have nothing against the concept. And coming back, I thought maybe I'd enjoy the concept more now that I've But no, it's just the execution. This did not pull a Gen 13 where I watched it and I'm like, well, I'm interested now to read the comics. I'm not interested in reading the comics. If it came back on TV and there was nothing on Netflix I'd rather watch, I might give it a (laughs) shot. I don't know. That sounds like a no, Arnie. That sounds like I'm not really into this concept, but I might give it a try, which is not the same thing as I really would like to see them try. Well, I'm never liking steampunk. I've never seen steampunk I enjoy. Back to the Future 3, you mentioned. Blah. So, no, nothing is going to make me say, yeah, go make that steampunk. But if they made it, if it had the right cast, if it had the right people behind it, you know, you get a Brian Fuller or something. Yeah, I'll tune in. Well, how about some more Alan Moore? Well, that's going to be in our future next week. Yeah, talk about unadaptable works. Next week, perhaps the most controversial. Watchmen. Unadaptable or just literally translated from page to screen. <laughs> Visionary director Zack Snyder is bringing it to us. Visionary? That's how they described him. That That is his moniker at this point, like visionary director. That was the marketing tool, yes. I, I remember that. That word was prominently used in trailers. I'll say this. I said it. If there's one movie that has the highest hopes of getting a green arrow in the series, because we're 12 not recommends for four films. One was close, but 12 not recommends. If there's a film that has a chance, it's got to be Watchmen, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure where I'm going to fall on that. I did see it once. I left feeling unresolved. And I did read the comic. I had read it before. I have since reread it. I know you guys have. You're going to have thoughts on that next week, Books and Nachos. I'll be coming back to it with all of that in my head. And we'll see what we get. And I've already rewatched it twice. Yeah, how many cuts of this are there? There are three cuts, and as one day I said I was the comic movie fan, so all of a sudden I was like, so Arnie, you're watching all three cuts, right? Isn't there one that's like four hours long or something? When the shortest one is two hours and 40 minutes, (laughs) I had to space them weeks apart to not just feel tortured by watching the same movie for 12 hours. So I've seen two cuts. I'll be watching the third before our review. Which cuts are you guys watching? The theatrical one. I'm watching the theatrical one, but I also got Tales of the Black Freighter and the Under the Hood features that I'll be watching as well, but not as not cut into the film. They made those as part of the movie? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there's a cut where they put it all together, yeah. Holy Toledo, he didn't do anything to adapt this into a movie, did he? <laughs> and I, I've seen the Under the Hood special feature, and since we've reread the comic, I'm like... That's almost verbatim. They just took the Under the Hood autobiography and instead made it like a 2020 special. Yeah, a preview of my thoughts ahead of time. Watchmen as a comic book is nearly impossible to turn into a movie as is, which is what Zack Snyder did. So, yes, that's what we'll be talking about, is how do you literalize something that probably should be more freely adapted. And then in two weeks, we head back to theaters 
for Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. It sounds like a court case. We'll give our verdict. <laughs> More visionary Zack Snyder. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget, our Now Playing book is still up for pre-order. Now Playing podcast forward slash book. 125 movies, 375 reviews, almost 20 pieces of original art. And if you pre-order, you get it signed by all four of us. So Jacob Stewart... Thank you for joining me. Sure. I'll thank you this time. Yeah. This wasn't as bad. No, it's all right. For a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so until next time, good night and Kareem. Okay, guys. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Good work, Weather Wizard. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Bravo, Justice League. Bravo, a virtuoso performance. But I want you to keep one thing in mind about the weather. It can change at any moment. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Comics film, featuring all the way through a weekend of release review of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Now, if you begin to feel an intense and crushing feeling of religious terror at the concept, don't be alarmed. That indicates only that you are still sane. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the DC movies with other listeners. Have they talked you into joining us yet? And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. What is it? The future, gentlemen. The future. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Only the best of the best come here. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You know, I like to go watch movies. You know, I, I like to watch long movies because, you know, I run around all day. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. We don't do this thing because it's permitted. We do it because we have to. We do it because we're compelled. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. We've got to tell the others. There's no time. Oh, yes, there is. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Can't spend your life in front of a computer, Tori. You know, it's a lot safer. Yeah, well, you know, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way just isn't helping my bank account, you know? Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. The watchdog group of nuclear scientists has moved the doomsday clock to two minutes until midnight. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Give them the money, Batman. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. You both look nice in your underwear. 
Now Playing's DC Teams Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. God doesn't make the world this way. We do. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Oh, I know. He talks funny. <laughs> now Playing is not affiliated with DC Comics or Warner Brothers Pictures. DC Comics and all that the DC Universe contains are copyright and trademark Warner Brothers Entertainment and no infringement is intended. Where do you see what I'm going to do to you when I get you back to that cave? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. <laughs> it's a joke. It's all a joke. Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. You don't think that's a little paranoid? Not what they say about me now. Paranoid. Home Voyage. Nothing ends. Ever ends. Superheroes, disperse. Starring Sean Connery. Worst Sean Connery ever, right there. So, <laughs> in this film or your accent? My accent. <laughs> thought it was a steampunk bazooka i didn't think specifically that it was going to grapple something i don't think it was a grappling hook i think it was a bazooka no it was like a it was like something sharp on a rope yeah but i it didn't have a i don't think it had a rope yeah it was a rope that was a steam trail no it was a rope (laughs) i can't settle this did someone put the movie on i'm telling you i am putting the movie on right now hold on i put this on three times to try and understand what was going on here hold on i'm getting to the germany thing stupid walking stick stereotypical german scientist bazooka firing bazooka (laughs) is there a rope there is no there's a rope son of a I know there's a rope. I'm just waiting for it. I'm like, you will you will now grapple with I've been trying to understand. Why would you fire a grappling hook at a line of things you're blowing up? 